0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei-Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazwisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I want to speak today about uh, dana, paramita, the perfection of giving. And um, is the first of the six or the ten perfections. But in the series of talks that I've been giving, I actually put it to the end. I chose to speak of it last. Um, Because although in the sutras it is said to be the, the easiest of virtue to practice, it is said to be common to all beings, I, I find it to be otherwise. And um, in fact, in the commentary, the Kariya Pitaka, the commentary on the, the perfections, is the one with the longest commentary. So, so maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't as simple as it seems. Because I think giving, selfless giving, doesn't come that easily to us. You know, I'll speak for myself. It it doesn't come easily to me. And I was um, last week. I I quoted a story at the or two weeks ago at the temple that's been attributed to Gandhi. And I'm not sure. Nobody knows if it's actually true that it was him. But um, the story says that there was a woman who was worried that her son was eating too much sugar and that it wasn't good for his health. But she knew that he really um, admired the Mahatma. And so she decided that she would take him to see Gandhi and would ask Gandhi to tell her son not to eat so much sugar. And so she went and took her son, and she explained the situation. And Gandhi listened, and he thought about it for a moment. He said, well, just come back next week. So they turned around. They left. A week later, they come back, and the boy is standing just right in front of him, and Gandhi looks at him and says, you know, you shouldn't eat so much sugar, because it's really bad for you. And the boy just looks at him, you know, with his face and says, okay, I won't. And he turns and walks out, and the mother is really puzzled. And she says to Gandhiji, well, why didn't you just say that to him last week? And Gandhi said, because last week, I, too, was eating too much sugar. (laughs) And uh, I thought about that story when I was thinking about writing this talk uh, originally. And and I thought, well, you know, but if I follow his example, I might have to wait another year or two to give this talk. So I am giving it, um, acknowledging there's still work to do. But I think, um, maybe especially in a context like this, in a setting like this, that it is easier to throw ourselves into Zazen, to develop or at least try to develop concentration, to, with some ease, relative ease, renounce. your choosing what you're going to eat, what your schedule is, your, your free time and how you will use it to be truthful, at least most of the time, to practice patience, especially, again, in the midst of sangha, because we are all doing the same thing. We know we're moving. We're trying to move in the same direction. So although each of the paramitas has its own challenges, I think this one is challenging because we're not a particularly giving culture. You know, we give when it's prescribed, right, during the holidays. And we know the angst that surrounds that time. And we give around birthdays and we give uh, at weddings. But really, mostly we give when it's convenient to us. We give when it doesn't put us out too much. You know, very few of us truly give unconditionally. Very few of us give ourselves Freely which, as Bodhidharma said, is the greatest gift of all. So giving has the characteristic of relinquishing, relinquishing grasping, relinquishing stinginess, relinquishing our fear of lack. In practicing dhanaparamita, we relinquish that fear that there won't be enough for me. We practice seeing and knowing in our bones that there is enough, more, than enough more than enough. And that the times when there isn't is because of what we've done. It's because of our understanding or lack of it. It's because of how we see ourselves, how we see each other, how we see this planet, and therefore how we act. And so when we do something like Dana Dinner, for example, our community, a holiday dinner, it feels good feels good as you're doing it. It feels good afterwards. And the families who came this time for, for the first time definitely said it felt good. That In that time of frenzy, you know, of craziness, that for their children to, to see that it doesn't have to be that, that there is such a thing as giving just for the sake of giving, that in fact it's quite natural That is not a stretch. It's not putting us out, but quite the contrary, that this is how things work in life when they're working. We read this article, and in this this angle, we've been focusing on um, earth awareness. And we read this article, those of you who are here for the Mondo uh, probably read it, by Mary Catherine Bateson, who um, is Margaret Mead's daughter and an anthropologist in her own right. And uh, she was speaking of of our, our role, human beings' role in the preservation of our planet, and she first is asking this question. Why should you or I as individuals inconvenience ourselves or limit our consumption when others are not doing so, and our separate impacts are so small a part of the whole? And it's a reasonable question from the perspective of the self. Why should I give when it's uncomfortable to give? When it especially means not taking, when it means renouncing, when others around me are not doing the same. It's not fair. And we don't do this just with the earth, we do it with everything. We look at each other and we wonder why is X getting more attention from the teacher, for example, or why is Y? Getting away with that? Why is she able to do this and I can't? In that mind of, of lack, I speak of it often because I think it is so strong in us. We are so afraid that there won't be enough. And Bateson, you know, answers her own question quite similarly to the way the Buddha would. I mean, she says, and when this is the wrong question because it is predicated on the notion of an individual, me, which is separate, independent from any relationship to you and to the rest of the world. And it is based on the belief that my rights as an individual are the most important thing, certainly more important than anything else. But if that's true... And if our individual rights are truly paramount, if they are, in fact, what gives us the most pleasure, the most fulfillment, then why is it that it just doesn't feel that way? We should be the happiest country on the planet, even if uh, individualism was real, was true. this is not quite the same thing, but a couple of years ago I read about an experiment that um, psychologists were doing to measure happiness and fulfillment, and people had to carry a beeper that would go off at random times during the day, and and they had to rate their level of fulfillment right at that moment with what they were doing. And uh, not surprisingly, people were most content, most fulfilled during sex although you have to wonder how that worked. You know, <laughs> hold on, honey, I have to make this note on my clipboard. You know. Okay, carry on. <laughs> and also, not too surprisingly, people were reported being more fulfilled when they were working, especially when their work was uh, some form of service. More than when they were just during their leisure time, when they were really doing nothing much at all. But what was surprising is that when they were asked what they would rather be doing, nine times out of ten people said they would rather be at home, relaxing and doing not much at all. So isn't that puzzling? You know, we know, we know what makes us happy and we choose otherwise. And maybe it's not so puzzling. As somebody said during the Mondo, since our Thirst for comfort runs so deep. And yet when it comes down to it, comfort is not what makes us happiest. The function of dana paramita is to dispel greed for things that cannot be given away, that can be given away, sorry. And this begins, of course, with material things, but also to the giving of oneself. And there's a a story by Oh Henry, called The Gift of the Magi. And I wouldn't uh, do a telling, I wouldn't do it, it's, it's due. Uh, so I'm going to read it, but it's just a very, it's a condensed version of it. And because of the way he uses language, it's, it's worth looking at the, the original. $1.87. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with a silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home, a furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder rag. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a eighty-seven to buy a present for Jim, her Jim. Now there was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Suddenly Della whirled from the window and stood before it. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. There were two possessions of the James Dilligham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. On went Della's old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. $20 in her pocket, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings forget the hashed metaphor she was ransacking the stores for jim's present and she found it at last it was a platinum fob chain simple and chaste in design properly pro- proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation as all good things should do for 21 dollars, it was even worthy of the watch when Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, my friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny close-lying curls that make her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, Carefully and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock sharp, a thin and serious Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim, laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact, yet even after the hardest mental labor. Cut off and sold it, said Della, Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room, curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you. Sold and gone, too. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put out the chops on, Jim? Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. White and nimble fingers tore at the string and paper, then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails. For there lay the combs, the set of combs side and back that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just a shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. But Jim had not yet opened his beautiful present. Wiping her tears, Della had held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now, she said. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. "Tell," he said, Let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. And it's called the gift of the Magi, because the last paragraph says this. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents, Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest, Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. (laughs) Mother Teresa once said, I don't want you to give me from what you have left over. I want you to give me from your want until you really feel it. And maybe, maybe that's the difference. You know, that when we give from our want, not just of money, but of time, of energy, of desire even, that when we do so, we're saying, myself and my comfort are not the most important thing. We're saying, I recognize that I am part of this web of life, and I choose to honor it by giving it something of myself even a little bit. A few years ago, one of our students uh, passed away, Khoshan Ritter, and she had been a student for many years, probably 20, 25 years. And um, I remember spending time with her as she was dying. She had cancer, and one day I, I went to see her, and she was saying, you know, I know that people say this is such a gift, you know, the, this, this cancer, and I've learned so much from it. And she said, but, you know, that's always the survivors. She was very uh, direct, and she was very um, unapologetic. She says, I don't think this is a gift. I don't want it. She says, I'd rather be healed. I'd rather be Well. And I remember thinking, because it's not the zen answer, if you will. And I remember thinking to myself, how refreshing. I mean, she was being completely honest. And later, uh, when she was close to death, I went to see her again. And she was in bed And by that point. And she, was, uh, she had oxygen. And I stepped closer to uh, hug her. And as I did, she, I, well, I stepped closer into the bed, and she just went, you're stopping on my oxygen. I mean, I jumped back as if I'd been electrocuted. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And then she just laughed and laughed. <laughs> and when I realized what she was doing, I started laughing too. And her face was just, um, I still see it. Uh, the expression on her face as she saw my face. (laughs) And as I left her house, I, I thought to myself, you know, may I be that alive when I'm dying? May I be that unconcerned with myself that I'm willing to just make someone laugh in a moment like that? And I thought, you know, so even in our death and in our dying, we can be that giving. Master Dogen says, the Buddha said, when a person who practices giving goes to an assembly, people take notice. Know that the mind of such a person communicates subtly with others. This being so, give even a phrase or verse of the truth. It will be a wholesome seed for this and other lifetimes. Give your valuables even a penny or a blade of grass. The truth can turn into valuables. Valuables can turn into the truth. This is all because the giver is willing. Now, of course, we can all give something. And Mother Teresa is saying, you know, when you give, do it not because you have too much, but because you know what it is to want. Do it because you know ultimately there's no difference between the one who gives and the one who receives knowing that this is bodhisattva activity, that this is the perfection of giving, that this is relieving the suffering of all living beings. And as with the earth awareness practice that we've been doing, the sangha, these paramitas require that we, that we look closely and that we look at our lives and ask very openly, what else can I do? How can I serve? You know, what can I give? Because from the perspective of the self, we will always find reasons not to. And there will be good reasons. Limits of time, as I said before, limit of energy, of capacity. I was talking to a couple of people who were just talking about the, the overwhelming nature of the environmental crisis. You know, you read some of this stuff and it it is overwhelming. And how do you take in what you need to take in and not turn away? Not be paralyzed, not be afraid by the magnitude of the problem. Because, of course, we can always just shut down, which we know how to do very well. We can say, well, it's hopeless anyway, so I'll just won't do anything. But if we're here, if we practice, we know, well, that's not quite enough. It's not quite enough for my life. It's not quite enough for life, period. And so what can I do? I only have a certain number of hours in the day. I heard about this exercise that Jinpu had you do yesterday, those of you who are doing the retreat on death and dying, about um, looking at your day and putting smiling faces, right, next to the those activities in your day which you considered, I guess, make you happy or fulfilled. And, and what a simple, what a simple thing to do where you can quite starkly see how you're spending your day. Because, We don't know how much time we have, right? We hope we have time. And there are really just a limited number of hours in the day. And so how do we choose to spend them? There was uh, was another story uh, about Mother Teresa where uh, she said there was a woman who came to her and said, you know, I really want to share in your work. And she was wealthy. And she also confessed to her that she had a, um, a weakness for expensive saris. And Mother Teresa said, well, how, do you, how much money do you normally spend for a sari? And the woman said, 800 rupees. And she said, OK, well, when you go next to buy one, buy one for 600 and use the other 200 and buy saris for the poor. And so the woman did that. And she kept working with her, and she kept saying, OK, you know, now can you do 500 or 550? Now can you do 400? And they got to a point, actually, the woman did on her own, where she was buying hundred-dollar saris and using the rest of the money to give away to the poor. And so, given our our privilege, you know, is there anything that we can give? Because again, from the if we if we look at it from the perspective of me, of myself, and my Rights and my comfort, it will always be uncomfortable and inconvenient. But what if we shift the perspective? And see, you know, I I know in my bones that this is the only way, and I still fight it. I very much fight it. Sometimes I think my first words must have been, well, you can't make me. (laughs) And the good thing, the only good thing really about my stubbornness is that it reaches everywhere. So it's both I fight to get my way, but I also fight to get out of my way. I mean, I don't know what it would be like if I wasn't here. I'd rather not think about it. I figured, you know, eventually I'll wear myself down. The proximate cause of giving is an object that can be relinquished. And the commentary says there are four shackles to the perfection of giving. And they are not being accustomed to giving in the past. The inferiority of the object to be given or the excellence and beauty of the object and therefore our worry over the loss of that object. So not being accustomed to giving in the past, it is difficult to give in the present. How do you break the shackle? By beginning. It's by giving something. And actually the key to all of all of the shackles, to opening all of the shackles is to just give, no matter how small and how insignificant it seems to me. And this is important because when we're overwhelmed, it is easy to think that I, I can't give at all, or this is my limit. Or it's easy to think, well, I'm not worth it, or what I'm giving is not worth it, or I'm above giving in this way or this is too good to give it's also much too easy to worry about what i will lose what i will miss if i give my time my energy my attention you know to something other than me and mine and so this this sense of of that relinquishing it really is all encompassing that that as i said at the beginning, to relinquish the fear that I will, by giving this, that I will lose, that I will have less myself, that somebody else will then be ahead. Now, the thing is, of course, we will lose everything when we die, and yet we're we're using all of our time and energy now worrying about it. And we were talking this morning about the five remembrances. I am of the nature to um, grow old. I'm of the nature to get sick. Everything that I have, that I own, you know, that I, all my relationships, I will lose. I'm missing one. Oh, I'm of the nature to die, so get um, sick, grow old, die. All my relationships, I will lose. They will change, they will go away. And therefore, the only thing that I have is my actions. This is a a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Making a Fist. We forget that we are all dead men conversing with dead men. It's Jorge Luis Borges. For the first time on the road north of Tampico, I felt the life sliding out of me, a drum in the desert, harder and harder to hear. I was seven. I lay in the car, watching palm trees swirl a sickening pattern past the glass. My stomach was a melon split wide inside my skin. How do you know if you are going to die? I begged my mother. We had been traveling for days. With strange confidence, she answered, when you can no longer make a fist. Years later, I smiled to think of that journey, the borders we must cross separately, stamped with our unanswerable woes. I who did not die, who am still living, still lying in the back seat behind all my questions, clenching and opening one small hand. We can clench that hand, and in fact, we can live with our hands clenched, both hands, in fact. Or we can open. And in, in that um, pain, because it is pain, um, of, of that giving away of something that is mine, I think the only way that it can uh, subside is through... Repetition. You know, you do it once. I imagine the woman with the saris, the first time she had to wear the 500, 500 rupee one, thinking, ah, this isn't right. No, from this perspective, it isn't right. And so you have to be willing to remember that there's a bigger picture. That there is... Um, always, of course, more to see and more to uh, take into account. And that, um, I, I forget who it was. I read it recently, and it was a, it was a teacher who was basically saying, when you see the whole, the whole world hidden within the world, right? So when, in other words, when there is no place to hide anything, to tuck away anything, to save anything for a later time, then that fear, that I will not have enough, it doesn't even make sense anymore. So in, in, in the beginning, we, 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 we tighten and we clench around the, the tiniest things. And then the more we practice, hopefully that, that grip begins to relax. And a responsibility or what I as an individual am able to do then has the opportunity to, to arise. Because it is in, in the midst of so much needed to be done. And the question becomes, how do I choose to spend this time that I have? What is my capacity? What is my uh, field of, of um, influence? And how do I choose to use it? We were, um, the other day we were talking about Dharma Communications, the work that we do there, and uh, people were bringing up questions that come up often, in fact, just about looking at the world and asking, why, why are we selling malas? You know, the world is burning. Why are we selling malas? Why are we spending our time in this way? I asked that question of my teacher not that long ago, in fact. Actually, it wasn't even a question. I was begging him. I was saying, the world is burning. Why am I spending my time choosing malas? And, and people were um, asking that question again very directly. And at the time, I, I didn't answer it well. I didn't feel um, and, and I said actually a couple of times in, in a couple different contexts, you know, that I would rather be doing something else than selling things. And afterwards I thought, you know, that's kind of disingenuous because it's not completely true. Um, it's not that I like selling, um, it's not that I dislike selling. There are times when I would rather be doing something else with my days here. But really that when it comes down to it, what I really would like is to meet what is in front of me with me out of the way so that I can in fact meet what is in front of me and see what is needed. And No, I mean, more malas aren't really needed and it would be good for us to continue to look at how we're spending our days and seeing if they can be shifted. But that really... um, my work being here is is really to be able to see as clearly as i can without my prejudice without my opinion or taking account into account my opinions but not being stopped by them what is really needed so that i can in fact respond that is really what i would like to do so if i'm working i'm in front of the computer or i'm working in the garden not that I don't have preferences, but to be able to meet each task completely, to have my wish and my desire not be the most important thing, then I think that would be a life well lived. And perhaps, perhaps then I could say, well, that was a life in which I was able to give, in which I was able to... um, Live for more than just me. For more talks, to get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazwisegoddard.org.